You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 14th of December. And it's fair to say the dust has settled at Expo City. The streets are quiet because nearly 100,000 delegates have now left for their home countries. And it is now time for the analysis to start. So was the Dubai deal good enough to save the planet? What happens next? We found out with one of Norway's negotiators, Christina Voigt. Meanwhile, the UAE took something of a risk hosting these talks and even more of a risk, putting an oil boss in charge of negotiations. But did it pay off? Well, we asked Andrew Campbell from Brand Finance Middle East about the impact of COP28 on the UAE's global soft power status. Meanwhile, AI-generated disinformation is being used to disrupt Bangladesh's upcoming election. We discussed its impact with the media analyst Miraj Ahmed Chowdhury and also found out the implications of this type of tech on future elections. And we also touched on lots of local stories because workers who failed to sign up for the UAE's unemployment scheme will now face fines as high as 400 dirhams. We discussed those penalties and how to avoid them with employment lawyer Luke Tapp from Pints and Masons. Meanwhile, with the festive travel season fast approaching, we found out why Mahaba has seen a 30% increase in demand for its meet and greet and lounge services. And we were joined in the studio by our resident tech expert, Sonal Rapani, because she's been doing lots of research into how AI could be paired with the human brain. It makes for fairly uncomfortable listening, it's fair to say. Uh, But much more comfortable was Robbie Greenfield's sports report, which he sent in for us despite being on leave. So big thanks to Robbie. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Now, it has been nearly 24 hours since the Dubai agreement at COP was graveled through. And as the dust sort of settles, the general impression is indeed of a job well done. This will inspire the optimists. And I know it will correct some misperceptions. This is a historic, historic landmark game-changing agreement. This outcome makes abundantly clear that we must transform the international financial system to pursue and achieve our climate goals. It's 1.5 to stay alive, and I have to hold on to hope. Because if I don't have hope, then what am I doing here? Is this a good deal for India, sir? Yeah, we are happy. Yeah, the voice of Dr. Sultan al-Jaba there, along with the U.S.'s John Kerry, Samoan activist Brianna Fruin and Indian Environment Minister Bupenda Yadav. Nearly 200 countries agreed to transition away from using fossil fuels after those tense negotiations that carried on through the night and overran into Wednesday morning. There were literally tears of relief and a round of applause as the COP president, His Excellency Dr. Sultan al-Jaba, hit that gravel. Many said this could not be done. But when I spoke to you at the very start of this COP, I promised a different sort of COP. Everyone came together from day one. Everyone united, everyone acted, and everyone delivered. 
Now, this wasn't the first COP to be held in the Middle East or the first COP to be held in an oil-producing nation, but it was certainly the first to have the boss of an oil company as president. And much was made internationally of His Excellency Dr. Sultan al-Jaba's dual role as head of ADNOC, and many questioned whether he was indeed the right person for the job. So there really was a lot riding on this event uh, for Dr. Sultan, but also for the UAE, something His Excellency nodded to in his final speech. And allow me to express my deepest respect and gratitude to His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan. I am deeply grateful for his confidence, his guidance, and constant support. I hope we made you proud, sir. So, has COP28 boosted the UAE's global standing? Well, let's find out. I'm joined now by Andrew Campbell. He's Managing Director of Brand Finance Middle East. Now, they create a global soft power index every single year. We've brought Andrew in a few months early to discuss it today. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. I really appreciate it. Good morning. Tell me, do you think this event will have improved the UAE's standing on the global stage? It's soft power, so to speak. Uh, Yes, uh, I certainly believe it will. Uh, We define soft power as the ability to persuade and attract rather than uh, enforce. And uh, clearly, the way that uh, COP has been managed has demonstrated that, uh, that the UAE can and has done that. So absolutely, we expect that this event and the holding of the event will be a strong positive for the perception of UAE globally. Was there a risk that it might not have gone this way? So, for example, if the agreement hadn't been made or if it hadn't been well received, do you think the pendulum could have swung the other way? There was clearly a risk. It was a very bold move. As you said, holding it in an oil-producing state is one thing in the current state of affairs. Uh, Nominating the head of the national oil company as the president, even bolder. So, yes, there were risks, but you know, the UAE stood up and said, this is us and this is what we believe and all are welcome and uh, stood up to the criticism, which was anticipated and did come, uh, but faced it down and uh, made very clear what the intent was and the priorities were and consensus was achieved. So do global events like World Cups and Expos and we we've seen two in the Middle East just recently, you know, obviously Expo 2020 and then the Qatar World Cup. Do they always improve a country's standing in your index? They certainly improve the familiarity of the country, uh, which does not necessarily mean it enhances the reputation because you have to be familiar with something for it to build a reputation and then influence. When it's done well, obviously, the reputation is enhanced and the influence of the host nation will grow. So it really depends on how well it's executed. But generally, you can say that familiarity with the nation will be enhanced. Whether the reputation is built, influence is built, happens over time. The UAE does pretty well in your index. Did Expo 2020 give it a boost? Uh, Absolutely, it did. Uh, The UAE 
punches above its weight in our index. It's uh, in the last iteration, it was number 10 globally in terms of soft power. And, you know, the top 10 include the US, the UK, Germany, Japan, uh, China, France. So, you know, the UAE is right up there as a global soft power. Uh, we did an exercise to measure the impact of Expo, and it was significant and tangible and did, again, boosted familiarity and also the reputation and influence because it was well executed. What does the UAE do so well in order to get itself in that top 10? Because, of course, it's a tiny country compared to all of the others that you just mentioned. Uh, the UAE has been very clear as to its intent and has focused on building its soft power, uh, not as a means of itself, but it has recognized early on that building soft power when you're a small na nation is absolutely critical. So they've focused and planned to build on all the pillars which generate soft power. And in our analysis, there are eight of them in addition to uh, reputation and influence. And uh, the UAE does well on all of those pillars. And it's, you know, has a dedicated program to advance that. Each one for its own means and uh, and uh, reasons, but all of that contributes to being an effective nation in terms of soft power. So why is soft power necessary um, and, and, and particularly necessary for smaller countries who, I suppose, don't have hard power? It, uh, as the world evolves, the consensus is that soft power is increasingly important as technology advances and so on. You know, in the olden days, it was whoever had the strongest military was able to subordinate and subdue weaker nations and, uh, you know, became the power. Uh, times have changed uh, over the centuries. And uh, now soft power and the ability to persuade and influence and attract is more relevant than ever. Uh, clearly, hard power is still you know, the ultimate enforcer. Uh, but because of technology and, uh, and so on, the ability to influence and attract, it becomes steadily more relevant. And as you say, for a, a nation that lacks hard power, because you know, in hard power, the biggest and the strongest generally wins, uh, lacking hard power, you have to uh, rely on your ability to make friends and build consensus. Make and friends and influence people. There's a, there's a book about that somewhere, isn't there? There is. Um, Andrew Campbell, always a pleasure to have you join us on the radio. Thank you so much for your time. Managing Director of Brand Finance Middle East. They're known for creating a global soft power index every single year. And it's been a great pleasure uh, to have Andrew in the studio. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, it must be quite interesting to be out at Expo City now. Uh, the dust settling, nearly 100,000 delegates descended on the site for the COP28 talks now. Of course, they've all gone. And certainly over the last 24 hours, the details of that 
Dubai deal have been percolating. There's been plenty of vociferous views on all sides, as you would sort of expect. And certainly the agreement to transition away from fossil fuels definitely isn't considered enough by some campaigners. For example, Victoria Wallen, who is an environmental justice lawyer. There was some great things that came out of this. Overall, it is pretty, pretty poor. You've been going backwards and backwards and backwards. We started off with a pretty decent text and then it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So was it a good deal? Earlier, I spoke to Christina Voigt. Now, she's worked as a legal advisor and climate negotiator for the government of Norway for more than six years. Uh, She, of course, has a a unique perspective being Norwegian. Worth remembering that, of course, Norway is an oil producing nation, Uh, but she is hugely experienced and knows exactly what happens next uh, and the impacts or the potential impacts of this agreement. I spoke to her late last night and this this was her reaction. In the end, no, I was not surprised. It was a very strategic move in the end after the presidency had consulted with all major groups and basically with all countries. It was a very important move to gavel it through. The consensus was in the room and there is no point in extending waiting time. There was a sort of gentle suggestion from some of the countries speaking afterwards, especially the Samoans, there was a sense that they didn't feel like they'd been involved in this final conversation. Do you think that that's posturing on their part? Or do you think it's possible that they were pushed to the sidelines slightly? I don't think they were pushed to the sidelines. It may have happened that they were perhaps a little late in getting into the room. That can happen. The plenary opened and basically the gaveling started. But I think for them, it was very important to raise their voice. And they perhaps had planned to do that before the decision was adopted. And so they were pushed in a situation where they had to do it after the fact. And I guess that was something that disappointed them. In addition to, of course, the content of the decision, which they had hoped would be stronger on several aspects. But their disappointment wasn't as strong as that they would you know, reserve their vote against the decision. It was just to make sure that their concerns were raised and heard. I think most people don't really understand how the UN process works, because in many ways, we're not sure what happens next. You know, we've got this agreement, there's a sense of elation that after two weeks of negotiations, an agreement was ultimately signed by all the parties. But what happens now? Well, that's the beauty with this particular decision, because we do know what happens now. This is the decision of the global stock take, which took now place for the first time, but it's going to take place every five years. So the next one is in 2028. So it's an iterative process. And it is very clear written in, in the Paris Agreement that the outcome of the global stock take shall inform the next round of the nationally determined contributions, the next round of every party's national climate plan. And they have two years now to do that because these NDCs are due in 2025. Now we have the end of 2023. So they have two years or less actually to take into account that decision that was adopted today and be informed by the content of the decision. And then in their national circumstances and priorities, design the next round of NDCs in the light of the outcome of this decision. So this is very clear that this has to happen. It's quite different from the previous years, from Glasgow and Sharm el-Sheikh, where we had covered decisions, 
which had very important elements, but these were just cover decisions. They were not linked into the process under the Paris Agreement. This is very different. And I think this is also partly why it was so difficult <laughs> to get to an agreement and why it is so important that the agreement is as it is. So within two years, they are going to have to declare their nationally determined contributions. And is that a promise of how much carbon they're going to cut? It's perhaps a bit more than a promise because it is actually a legally binding obligation under the Paris Agreement to communicate a nationally determined contribution every five years. And what parties put in that NDC is up to their discretion, but once they have put it forward, they're kind of committed to it. So it's a pledge that every party makes against which they then also will have to report every other year on how well they're doing and implementing and achieving the goals they set themselves. So what we've seen today is actually a kicking in motion of the the ambition cycles, ambition processes under the Paris Agreement. We haven't seen that until today. Is there anything else that comes directly out of the agreement that was signed? Are there any other pledges that countries are required to uphold? For example, do they need to show how they are transitioning away from fossil fuels, for example? The decision itself gives a signal. It's not in itself legally binding as such. Per se, it is something that suggests a pathway, and there are many different ones. You just mentioned transitioning away from fossil fuel in energy systems. But if you look in that particular part of the decision, there are many other aspects as well. For example, accelerating efforts to phase down unabated coal power, accelerating non-carbon dioxide emissions, in particular reduction in methane. So many different aspects. And it will depend on each country's emission portfolio, which one of those elements they take into account and include in their national policy mix. But what is interesting is the importance that the decision puts on nature, on forests, on oceans, on wetlands. That's something that is quite new, quite innovative, and that may trigger a number of actions which may perhaps have otherwise fallen out of states' climate measures. It all sounds quite woolly if you're not used to UN speak. And so from the outside, it doesn't necessarily feel like a great leap has been taken in climate protection. But from within the geopolitical community, does it feel like an historic agreement, as His Excellency Dr. Sultan al-Jabba has described it? Yeah, I think it can fairly be characterized as historic. Historic because in the 30 years of the UN climate regime, fossil fuels have never been addressed explicitly in any decision of the Conference of the Parties. So now having a whole paragraph that deals with transitioning away from fossil fuels, that is historic because it is, but I can understand that it looks and sounds woolly to the outside world, but one has to keep in mind that there are almost 200 states that negotiate and that need to decide by consensus, which means that basically everyone has to be on board. And we do know how different states are, right, from small Samoa or Vanuatu to big countries like Canada, United States, China, and so forth. But everybody has to be on board. And to sort out all the differences and finally get to an agreement is 
very, very, very difficult. And that is why sometimes the language may appear as, as woolly. <laughs> to what extent do you think the UAE's presidency played a part? How much do individuals impact on this process? Individuals impact much more than one may think, in particular the presidency. The presidency every year has a very, very important role in guiding this process, in preparing draft text together with the secretariat, text that draft decisions that take into account all the different positions that they hear. The presidency consults or has to consult with all the parties. And I think that the UAE has done a magnificent job, really diligent, really patiently included and heard everyone. But the fact that basically all parties were on board and felt that they had been heard is due to the presidency having done a very good job. Interesting words there uh, from the Norwegian climate negotiator, Christina Voigt, bringing us her views of that Dubai deal that was signed yesterday at COP28. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the agenda. Right. uh, Interesting story to discuss now. Um, And I wonder whether you remember back when Donald Trump was running for president in the United States. There was loads of talk about how supposedly the Russians were trying to influence the election through social media, through sort of Facebook videos. Well, with the advent of AI, the involvement of bad actors, I suppose, depending depending on your perspective, uh, trying to influence elections has actually stepped up a gear. And it's being seen most starkly right now in Bangladesh, which is gearing up for a hard-fought election next month. And joining me now to talk through what is actually going on there is Miraj Ahmed Chowdhury, who's the managing director of the Bangladesh-based media research firm Digitally Right. Thank you so much for joining me on the line, Mirage. Tell me, how is AI being used to sway public opinion ahead of uh, this upcoming election? Thank you very much for having me. Uh, uh, I think what we have been uh, watching, uh, this information is there for a long time, like it is not something new. Uh, I have... uh, our analysis of like past one year's data show that the 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 political disinformation, to be frank, is on the rise in the lead up to the national elections. Yeah? So how political disinformation functions? It is uh, like it is not about like one side. I think we we can see disinformation uh, flowing from uh, both of the sides of the political rim. Uh, and, and particularly, this comes in many ways, in many points, to be frank. Sometimes some disinformation targets some individual political leaders. Sometimes it is shaped in different narratives, which is false news. Sometimes uh, it, is, uh, it is sometimes even activation, like uh, just talking about a lot of uh, emotional uh, misinformation, which is not actually true. Uh, these are all, all directed to shape our public opinion in a different points. Uh, this having said this, I think what we have seen uh, gradually it is changing. At some point, it was very much text-driven coming from websites yeah? and then amplified through social media platforms. Now it is pretty much social media-driven. We can see a lot of use of graphics cards. We can see a lot of use of videos. And that said, 
we can see a level of experimentation uh, regarding artificial intelligence tools uh, in creating this information and spreading it as well. So uh, how do these so, AI videos sort of present themselves? You know, I mean, it, we, we bandy around the word AI all the time, but what are, what are some actual examples of the videos that are being used? How is this misinformation basically stepping up a gear? I think what we see right now is a lot of experimentation. I would not say this is very widespread, but this is something that is being tried in different fronts. So for example, like how you create, there are several types, you know, some, it depends on the sophistication of that. So sometimes it is like use, you are using, a, a, say, open AI tool, which is free to use and probably very, uh, if it is like a paid tool, this is not very expensive. You use that to create a persona. Or, or, or a character, and, and you let the character say what you want it to say. And sometimes what the character is saying on a video is a misinformation or disinformation or propaganda. So I think definitions matter here. Yeah? So, but I would say these are easy to detect because at some point you can see that there is a logo of that AI too. Uh, this is how fact checkers verify it. But there, I, I think it depends on the level of sophistication because in a lot of videos you don't see that. Where actually you are not creating a character, but you are using a real-life video of a real-time political person and just changing the voice and the words in his mouth using AI. AI tools, which is very hard to detect, and which has more deeper impact on democratic process and political uh, uh, political campaigns. Is the problem that people genuinely can't tell that they're fake, or is it that people aren't looking very closely to see if they're fake? To be frank, what people believe matters, but more often, an ordinary social media user perceives the content from his confirmation bias. That's it. So if I'm a believer of a certain ideology, if it supports my thoughts, my own beliefs, there is high chance that I will believe that content, even though it, in an, in an even ordinary look, the video sounds to be fake or looks to be fake. So often bias determines how I perceive a content and it, it, it actually uh, it actually supports or, 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 or strengthens your confirmation within your mind. That is why no matter whether the content itself looks believable or not, it has an impact on certain individuals based on their belief systems. So Does what, it make sense? So what are the implications of this? Do you think it, you know these types of videos could genuinely sway public opinion enough to change the results of the election in Bangladesh? I think these videos, I still will say that they are very low in numbers. But this information is, you cannot see this information isolatedly from a point of view of AI videos. So there are various types of disinformation, and this is one component. So as a whole, disinformation shapes of public opinion in many ways. Yeah. So we need to consider it as a whole. And this is one tool that is being used to sway public opinion. But what is more important to understand is, uh, I will say, uh, you know, disinformation actors in many of the least developed countries are pretty much labor intensive. That means people are producing disinformation. So when this labor intensive industry becomes technology intensive, they have the technologies and tools to produce disinformation at a mass scale. You can imagine what is going to come in, in the next few years 
when uh, in, in 2024 when we are anticipating 40 national elections in 40 countries wow. so i think this is something to watch and this is something uh, going to shape different narratives in different parts of the world that we can already see absolutely fascinating stuff did you say 40 elections in 2024 yes wow yeah wow mirage it's been a great pleasure to speak to you really eye-opening stuff thank you so much for your time Uh, mirage ahmed chowdhury there managing director of the bangladesh-based media research firm digitally right joining us uh, from his hometown Uh, really fascinating stuff and obviously we will keep a close eye on the results of that uh, bangladesh election and whether or not indeed uh, people and observers do conclude that it was influenced uh, by artificial intelligence or at least artificial artificially intelligent videos something to that extent anyway we're we're gradually learning the way in which to describe i suppose deep fakes that's probably the easiest way to describe it Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Right, we're going to take a look at a local news story making headlines right now because more than 6.7 million workers have now signed up to the UAE's obligatory unemployment insurance scheme. Uh, And the first policies of that, by the way, will be becoming eligible to pay out from next month. But two months on from the legal deadline, new figures show that 14% of employees have failed to register. And as a result, officials from the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratization have now confirmed the level of fines to be imposed for non-compliance. Have you signed up yet? I'll tell you later how you can do it. Um, But it's super simple and it's not very costly and it is definitely worth doing, not least because those who failed to register by October, which of course was about three months ago now, will be fined 400 dirhams. And those who miss payments on their ongoing premiums will be hit with penalties of 200 dirhams. And the reason I think for that ongoing premiums uh, sort of element there is because some people signed up a year ago more or less, and therefore they're going to need to renew come the 1st of January. Let's find out how that is all going to work. Um, Producer Jennifer Crichton earlier caught up with Luke Tapp. He's a partner and employment law practice lead for Pinsent Masons in the Middle East. And he said the 14% non-compliance is actually really quite impressively low at this stage. I think that that is a better number for compliance than I had anticipated it would be. There's been a lot of regulatory change over the past 12 to 18 months, whether it's in relation to amortization, new labour law, or this unemployment insurance scheme. And I think that employers and employees are beginning to be more responsive and comply more with these regulatory developments. And I think 14% not complying with the requirement to register is actually lower than most countries would see in relation to this type of a change. So I think it's quite positive that that's that's how low the number of non-compliance is at the moment. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's about the way it's been communicated? Do you think generally the workforce here are quite compliant? What do you think is behind the fact that 6.7 million people have signed up so quickly? I think that's a great question. And I think it's a combination of reasons. I think the beginning point is that it's because of the nature of the change. I think it's a really 
positive social and public policy change. It's designed to introduce some form of social security protection to employees. And I think that's a positive thing for employees as well as organisations. So I think that, that it's been received really positively by the private sector and by employees. And I think that's why there's a lot of enthusiasm for people to sign up to it. I think Alongside that, it's a very reasonable cost. You know, it's 10 dirhams per month for higher earners. It's five dirhams per month for lower earners. I think people think that the sort of cost benefit of having that level of protection if they lose their role it is absolutely a good investment. And then finally, I think that point you make about compliance, I think generally there is a good level of compliance within the UAE in relation to regulatory requirements and particularly within HR employment law fields. Now, the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratisation has said that it's now going to start applying fines. It's 400 dirhams for people who fail to register on time. It's going to be 200 dirhams for people who miss payments or don't renew on time. Are those sitting around where you would expect to see? And what are the challenges going to be in terms of collecting those fines? I think what's interesting is that the fine is so much higher than the cost of subscribing. So that does feel like it's quite a high fine for those employees who have not subscribed. But at the same time, if you compare that with other breaches of the law, whether it's traffic offences, it's kind of in the same sort of ballpark. So I'm not surprised by the level of the fine. And then in terms of enforcement, now this has not been announced by the authorities, but my understanding when the legislation was first introduced was that it would be difficult to renew visas or renew Emirates IDs if there were fines outstanding. So I anticipate that that's the way in which it may be enforced, that employees who have outstanding fines that haven't cleared them will be unable to renew renew their visas or work permits. You mentioned that it's been welcomed pretty widely in the private sector. Is that something you're seeing among your clients, that this is a policy that's been very well received? Absolutely. It's been very well received amongst our client community. I think our the clients we work for, whether they're international global clients with operations in the UAE or regional clients, they're absolutely looking to develop this type of social security culture within their UAE work- workforce. So it's been very well received. And I think what's really interesting as well is that the back end of this policy where employees have subscribed for 12 months and then they may be at risk of redundancy, That is starting to trigger now because some employees will have had 12 months subscription by January 2024. So companies and employees are now speaking to us about, well, we need to change the workforce. We need to make reductions to the workforce. We may be letting people go. How does that work with those employees then receiving a payment for the three months following the termination of employment to give them a soft landing? So we're seeing that it actually have an effect in practice to make sure employees do have that soft landing when a business is restructuring. Luke Tapp there, who is a partner at Pinsent Masons. He's also uh, the lead on their employment law practice right here in the Middle East. Uh, so yes, indeed, if you want to sign up, uh, if you've just listened to that and had that sort of slightly heart-sinking feeling of, my goodness me, I need to sign up for that. I haven't yet. It's super simple. Just go to the website, I-L-O-E. Dot A-E. That's I-L-O-E dot A-E. And at that point, you can sign up uh, for a year. Uh, you have two choices depending on how much you earn. For people with uh, low wages who earn up to 
10,000 dirhams a month, uh, then at that stage you are in category A, uh, which means the cost is five dirhams plus VAT for a month. You pay it all at once. And then if you're in category B, if you earn up to 20,000 dirhams a month, uh, then you have to pay 10 dirhams. In exchange, if you do become unemployed, you do get 60% of your average basic salary. Uh, and that is quite a major sort of um, cushion, I suppose. Uh, and those compensation benefits come into force a year after you sign up. So the sooner you sign up, the sooner you could be protected. So I'll just repeat that website. It is ILOE.ae. Make sure you sign up for that now. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Right, as we head towards the festive season, airports around the world are bracing themselves for that annual surge of travellers. And apparently our habits are changing. Many more of us are wanting to upgrade our travel experience with a lounge visit or a meet and greet service. Now, that is according to the organisers of the global airport hospitality company, Mahaba. Now, they're based out of Dubai. They've seen demand for their services rise by 30% year on year at the airport here. But they are a global service and they're seeing increasing enthusiasm for it around the world. Earlier, I spoke to Tim Walker. He is vice president of of commercial and business development and also airport operations for Donata in Dubai. And he told me that these numbers are indeed part of a wider trend. I think we've seen a, a dramatic change since COVID. And coming out of COVID, we've seen Dubai being incredibly popular as a destination. So a huge amount of traffic coming through Dubai nowadays. But coupling that with passengers seeking to really add and find added value services to the journey, not just in the air, but on the ground. And that's really where Mahaba fits in. Passengers are prepared to pay for our added value services that we provide here at the airport. Um, I'm not sure how much background you know about Mahaba, but Mahaba is part of, it's our hospitality service as part of Donata. And we operate in various airports around the world, seven countries in services such as meet and greet, lounge services, home check-in. All of these services are really aimed at removing friction points and adding value in high moments of stress when passengers are going through that journey. So do you think that we are returning to a sort of golden age of travel where people want it to feel more luxurious or do you think they're just trying to skip the queues? I think there's probably a combination of both. We're certainly seeing some people wanting more luxury experiences who are prepared to pay for sort of elite services, which take you from aircraft door all the way to your home and drop you off in that that private car. And then there's other people who just want the express service at the airport to remove the, the, the friction that's there and, and waiting in queues. So I think what's most important in, in today's environment of the traveller is making sure choices are available and making sure that we have products and services available within the airport environment that can facilitate everybody's needs, whether it be the business traveller or whether it be the leisure traveller that's coming through. And when you say you've seen a big upswing, how big is it exactly? Coming out of COVID, in the early parts of COVID, we had a three times multiplier in terms of uptake of the services at the airport. And that was primarily around people not quite sure of what those airport processes were. That's normalised now, although it's still more than 150% of what our pre-COVID levels were for things like meet and assist. I guess as we've seen demand pick up here in the airport, our lounge services, for example, in year on year have seen a 30% uptake 
So what type of people are doing it? I know about the service because my dad uses it. He needs sort of extra assistance getting through the airport. But is it the sort of the elderly and the decrepit who are using it? Is it families with young children? Actually, it's all parts of the market. So we're seeing families with children needing the services because, you know, quite frankly, going through an airport with children and holding passports and bags, you know, that's that's tough and that, that requires a lot of um, time and attention. So certainly families are using it. A lot of friends and family travellers coming through, as you said, for your father. I, I do the same thing for my parents when they come through just to make sure that they're sped through the processes. We're seeing regular travellers coming through, making sure that they can just speed through as much as possible. So we're really seeing everybody use the services and we try and modify our products and services to tailor those different types of demographics. Our newest one is through our partnership with our sister company, Doobs, which is our at-home check-in services. So we've seen a lot of people trying to do a lot of transactions away from the airport. If they can check in and get their bags processed at home, that means when they come to the airport, they don't have to worry about lugging around suitcases and worrying about checking in. They can just wander through the processes. So we really try and adapt and, and develop our products to make sure that we're meeting everybody's needs. It's quite interesting that people can now buy that lounge experience, whereas in the past it was a reward for for travelling a lot or it was a reward for being a business traveller. Are you ever concerned that the people who have all the miles and get to be in the lounge because of that are sort of looking around thinking, who are these horrible people in the lounge here with me? You know, how are you managing those two groups of people? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting topic because you've got common user space where you keep multiple sets of people, depending if they're coming in via their credit card access. We have a lot of that here in in the UAE or whether they're coming in via their airline memberships. Um, It's really about making sure that for each of those customer demographics coming in, the product is suited and available. So for example, some of our customers might have complimentary shower access within the lounges, or they may have access to a more premium area within the space that may have a different food and beverage offering. So there are ways to make sure that each of those customer groups are serviced and looked after within a common user space. Yeah, certainly. Whenever I am lucky enough to go into the business lounge, I always worry if I've got my children with me because I'm a bit like, that's the last (laughs) thing you want when you're a business traveller. Obviously, we are heading towards one of the busiest times of the year. I presume the festive season is the second busiest after summer. Are you guys ready down at Dubai Airport? Have you staffed up in preparation? We have. We're certainly ready. This is probably one of our busiest times for our meet and assist and our our lounge services. We're now a a workforce of about 700 strong here just on the meet and assist side. So there is a huge number of services that we're providing. So we're ready and, and, and we're eager. And certainly we've seen the flows coming through thick and fast. Tim Walker there, Vice President of Commercial and Business Development and also Airport Operations for Donata in Dubai. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there and welcome back to The Agenda. Right, let's take a look at a top tech story um, because a new episode of The Reboot is coming your way this Sunday from 10am. Sonal Rapani has joined us to talk about what they have come up with to keep us entertained this weekend. Hello, Sonal. Hi, Georgia. How's it going? Very well indeed. Thank you very much. We've just been doing a little bit of off-air planning on Christmas, but you are actually turning your attention to the brain and how it can compete with but also be complemented by computer tech this is a big 
AI topic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The idea is understanding, you know, I think when you think of AI versus the brain, you think how on earth could something that is manufactured by humans compete with the genetic evolution of this millennia that we don't even fully understand yet? Yeah. Right. And you think that surely it can't compete. But um, I caught up with David Eagleman. He's a neuroscientist at Stanford University. He's a bestselling author. He's done so much. I kind of have to strip down all of his accolades because there's only so many you can mention. He's done a series called The Brain with David Eagleman. He's written a book called The Brain, The Story of You. He's also the writer and presenter of The Creative Brain, which was on Netflix for a time. I know to theme. Yes. (laughs) He's the brain guy. He's a brain guy. He's the brain guy. So I wanted to talk about some more futuristic concepts with him because one of the things that we talked about is that there's a lot of research on brain computer interfaces and this has actually been going on for decades it's been going on for a long time but people are sort of standing up and taking attention now because of Neuralink and Elon Musk just really been more in the forefront because of that so initially of course the focus is on paralyzed people mostly um, people who need that kind of therapy to communicate with their brain where they may not have that but is this something at some point when we perfect it that we all kind of opt into I mean we look at just how we use our phones So this is fusing tech in your brain. Exactly. In your brain. Will we be, instead of just having it on a phone outside of our being, will we opt to kind of go in, put a little tiny chip into our brain so that it's right there and we don't have to even use our motor function of our fingers that can communicate directly? That creeps you out a little, doesn't it? Do you know, it? it does creep me out, but my memory is really bad. I basically can't recognize people. It's terrible. <laughs> I've heard of it. Like, it's a disorder. It's called face dysphasia or something like that. Literally, I, I, a colleague, somebody I worked with, she's probably listening now, Sarah, I worked with her for a year at the National Newspaper, yeah. bumped into her at COP, kind of knew I knew her. Yeah. But you couldn't place it. Couldn't place it. But that happens to all of us from time to time. But it sounds like you're saying it happens all the time. All the time to me. So if there was a chip you could put in my brain that meant I always recognize people and I'd avoid that social, mortal social embarrassment, I'm in. I like how you and I are instantly thinking about the social function of this. I'm like, yes, if I could remember, kind of download everything that somebody said to me in a conversation so that like the next time I talk to them, I could be like, oh, how is your dog? Or whatever their issue or was at child. the time. It's right? when I'm writing Christmas cards. I can't remember the and name then of you can children's just, you names. You can just tune out and let it all just upload into it your brain. It just flow. It would, so we're worried about social settings. <laughs> I imagine I'm sure there's more useful functions. Guys are like, yeah, I'd want to download so I knew how to mend my own car. Is that too stereotypical? <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit, George. It's true, though. It's true, but though. We did catch up with David. And he said, if you look at the de- dependency that we have on our phones today, the question is just, will we make that leap to inserting the computer into our bodies? In answer to your question, I do think that this will be something that will extend beyond just paralyzed people. That'll take a few decades because... You know, there's all sorts of regulation. And so it'll only be used in people who are paralyzed and it'll be of great service to them. But will people get an implant so that they can, let's say, communicate with their phone faster? The answer is yes, but it requires an open head surgery, uh, at least at this time. And, it's you know, I would love to type faster on my phone, but I'm probably not going to get an open head surgery in order to be able to do that. So probably if we're cutting forward, let's say 100 years or 200 years from now, it'll be a different sort of technology, like a little capsule that you swallow that releases millions of little nano robots that swim through your bloodstream and cross the blood brain barrier and you know situate themselves in your neurons. 
and then communicate with the outside that way. Um, I, I do think probably if, you know, if we look a thousand years in the future, that's almost certainly what, what will be happening. That, some, for some reason, freaked me out even more than what we were talking about. So it's not just about having surgery and implanting it in your brain. He's like, no, no, no. Nobody's going to go for that. At some point, we'll develop something where you just have the molecules directly go into your bloodstream and implant themselves. I oh, mean, that is man. way creepier. Another thing this made me think of is, have you seen that show? I think it's on Amazon Prime, if I'm not mistaken. Upload? No. Have you heard of this concept? It's all about the idea that people, when they pass away, have uploaded their consciousness to a computer system and they live in this sort of simulated reality, but it's all based on a computer server not being in their own body. Um, And I thought, I've heard more about this concept being thrown around. In theory, could we in the future upload our consciousness to a machine so that we're not reliant on physical bodies? So, so we don't know because it all depends on uh, a central question in neuroscience, which is, is the brain just a giant machine running very sophisticated algorithms? It certainly seems that that is the case. Um, and, you know, centuries of looking at data of brain damage and what happens when you get brain damage certainly seems to be the case that this is just a big cellular machine that Mother Nature has figured out how to build after billions of years. Um um, and in that case, it should be no problem to replicate the algorithms and upload those onto some other substrate that's more stable, like silicon rather than, you know, cells. Um, but I will say our science is still young and we don't know if there are other things that might be trickier to get. For example, I'm not saying this is true, but people have suggested that there are quantum mechanical effects in the brain. And we don't know if that's the case yet. But if so, then it's not such an easy kind of computer that we can just replicate. We might have to do something very special to be able to replicate what's going on in the brain. I would say that um, we just don't know at this at this moment. But, yeah, if it turns out it's just a big deterministic machine, we should be able to uh, to eventually do that. Now, of course, there's more than that. Of course, not as simple as just getting a snapshot of somebody's mind, but somehow integrating the ability to form new thoughts, understand previous events, remember them, you know, all of the networks that are involved. But if the networks, as he said, were just the algorithm that we think it is in the brain, then in theory, we could replicate it. The which... fact that the world's preeminent expert on brains is saying that gives it gives me a bit of a shudder down the back of my (laughs) spine, I have to admit, because it's one thing, you know, science fiction geeks saying it or, you know, know, futurologists, you know, hypothesizing that it could happen. But if you've got your big brain man coming on and saying it... That was actually David Eagleman. I'm not sure he would respond to Big Brain Man. Uh, he's a neuroscientist. Like it. Who wouldn't like that? <laughs> Who wouldn't like that? Yeah. He's a neuroscientist and author. Um, and of course, you can hear more from him on Sonal's program this weekend. What time are you on? 10 a.m. on Sunday. Fantastic. And also worth noting that David will be here for the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature, which is soon. I can't believe it. It's set to run from the 31st of Jan to February the 6th. Uh, so if you want to hear more from him, uh, then I think you can probably buy tickets easily. Even now. So, Nort, thank you very much. Pleasure to have you in. See you very soon. See ya. And in fact, you are going to be presenting this programme for the next two weeks as of Monday. Exactly, from Monday. Yeah, because I'm on holiday and next week I'm presenting the Business Breakfast with Tom. So everyone will look forward to seeing Sonal. Be kind to her. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. 
Right, time to talk about sport. I'm delighted to say we are joined by Robbie Greenfield. He has sent us the latest headlines in this report. Good morning, Georgia, and plenty of football to reflect on as the UEFA Champions League group stages came to a conclusion last night. The round of 16 is set for Newcastle United trying to navigate their way through the group of death, Group F. It is heartbreak. They finished bottom of their group ultimately. They statistically had a chance of qualifying. And and for a while during the match last night, it actually looked like it might happen. Joel Linton gave Newcastle the lead against AC Milan at St. James's Park. Borussia Dortmund took the lead against PSG. That was the exact scenario that Newcastle needed. But sadly for them, it was not to be. AC Milan ultimately equalised and ultimately won that match through goals from Pulisic and Chukwesi in the 84th minute and PSG equalised against Borussia Dortmund to scrape through to the knockout stages. Hardly convincing from the French champions, but for Newcastle and for AC Milan, it's goodbye from this year's Champions League. There was a record win for Celtic, their first Champions League home win in 10 years. Um, over Feyenoord, that one 2-1. It doesn't mean anything in terms of progression for Celtic. They still fail to progress through to the knockout stages, but that was nonetheless a record win. And a a lovely story coming out of the Manchester City game last night. They beat Red Star Belgrade 3-2. And 20-year-old Mika Hamilton, who's a graduate from the City Academy, scored on debut in the UEFA Champions League. Now, there's a lovely clip circulating of him as a ball boy back in 2017, six years ago, being instructed as to what to do, being coached by none other than Pep Guardiola. That was as a ball boy. Now he was sent on as a player for the first team and he scored on his Champions League debut. It's a lovely story, that. So that was a busy night of Champions League action. Finally, in the world of football, a little one for you. If you happen to have a a spare $10 million rolling around, I certainly do not. You might want to spend it on the shirt Lionel Messi wore during Argentina's 2022 FIFA World Cup final victory over France. It's going under the hammer at Sotheby's in New York later today and is expected to beat the 10.91 million paid last year for a jersey worn by Michael Jordan in game one of the 1998 NBA finals. Two absolute icons of the world of sport. Messi to beat MJ when it comes to the most expensive piece of sports memorabilia. We'll be keeping our eyes on that one. It was been a football heavy update, that one, Georgia. But that's brought you up to speed on all things UEFA Champions League. And yeah, I'm a little bit shy of that $10 million needed for the Messi shirts. Robbie Greenfield there, a sports uh, correspondent, bringing us up to date with everything that's happening on and indeed off the pitch. Uh, Robbie actually is currently on leave, so he won't be joining the Offscript team this afternoon. Uh, but make sure you tune in for your drive time show from 5pm. I know that Sonal and Chris will be uh, ready and waiting for you. And in fact, huge jealousy here from the Agenda programme, because yesterday they were broadcasting from that new address in the marina which had spectacular views the agenda is live monday to friday from 10 a.m till 1 p.m